Welcome back, everyone. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Thank you for listening. This uh, this podcast is not mandatory, unlike the masking situation, so we appreciate you being with us. But you know what else is mandatory is the regular gathering of God's people for worship at church. That's the subject of our conversation today. My guest is Andrew Sandlin, and our regular listeners should know him well. Andrew is a cultural theologian, pastor, and a fellow at the Ezra Institute. And he joins me on the phone from California to talk about the order to suspend church meetings in California, about the high-profile case of John MacArthur, who decided to hold services at his L.A. area church anyway, and about some of the implications that this decisive moment has for the church and for Christianity in the West. I hope you enjoy it. Andrew Sandlin, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you back with us again. And uh, the the main reason that I wanted to to connect with uh, with you in particular is because as a fellow, as a scholar, uh, as a pastor, and uh, then as somebody with uh, with boots on the ground there in California, I wanted to uh, to get your your take and your reflections on Governor Newsom's order that. Uh, that shut down church gatherings, and then the big thing in a lot of Christian circles has been John MacArthur most conspicuously has uh, has spoken against that order and has gone ahead and uh, and opened their church for services uh, this past week. What I'd uh, yeah, what I'd love to hear from you is what your sense of how the governor's order is being received generally, what churches are. Are resp- how churches are responding, I should say. And one of the other things that I've, uh, that I've sort of been hearing a lot about is people saying, well, there are other churches, smaller churches, churches without big name recognition that, uh, that have been faithfully meeting as well. And I would, uh, I'd really appreciate uh, your, uh, your take on that whole scene. Yes, Ryan, thank you so much, and thanks for the invitation. Um, TCL and I are just privileged to join with uh, the Ezra Institute and the Reformational Center and all you're doing. We're just uh, like brothers separated at birth. Appreciate you guys. So, yes, a big topic there. Um, Let's see if I can uh, take those in order. Of course, our governor, um, Newsom, is a radical uh, secularist. Mm-hmm. I think the first thing to understand about uh, these executive orders is that, uh, as those of us with EICC and CCL understand, uh, worldviews make a difference. Correct. Uh, yeah. So uh, <clears throat> there is no neutrality. So his political decisions will be shaped by his radically secular worldview. Uh, so uh, being secular, he does not understand... Uh, or recognize uh, the importance of Christianity in the Christian church. And also being secular, and uh, this is another vital point, uh, he is like most, though not all, secularists committed to a statist uh, ideology. Uh, statism as an ideology is essentially the view that there is no social problem for which a greater role of the state is not an answer, or at least a movement toward the solution. So. When uh, COVID-19 um, developed and uh, the initial response was, well, it's obviously the only uh, political decision we can make is to not uh, 
simply quarantine the sick, as the Bible, of course, demands in Leviticus, but rather teach, uh, rather treat the entire population as though it were infected or at least asymptomatic, and therefore lock down the entire economy. And precisely because places like churches involve, uh, at least many of them, a high concentration of people, they're going to be our first targets mm-hmm. uh, for uh, foreclosure. <clears throat> that, of course, happened at the time. Um, I think even more draconian, uh, and most of your listeners, uh, even Canadian listeners, might know that about a month or perhaps even as long as six weeks ago, Newsom uh, issued an additional uh, political edict, and that what it, that's what it is, a, a, a political edict offering guidelines, which is a euphemism for this really is, is the law, that, uh, yes, churches can meet if everyone is uh, anti-socially distanced. That's my right. moniker, anti-socially distanced. That's more everyone accurate. Wearing, yes, everyone is wearing masks. But furthermore, and more ominously, Ryan, that the congregation cannot recite, and you know, some more liturgical churches chant, cannot sing, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, so essentially, we have, in many ways, a sort of Gnostic church service. Yes, there are physical people there, but everyone is separated. Virtually everyone is masked. Uh, there can be no touching of any kind, uh, and the congregation can't participate. Uh, I noticed one congregation, a conservative Anglican congregation, uh, read a statement from the uh, pastor. He made a very good point. Though I disagree with the decision not to hold church, which was his and the church's decision, he made a very good point. He said, under these conditions, there can be no public worship. And he's correct on that point. Right. Under those conditions, there can be no public worship because the congregation in the Bible is participatory. We see that clearly in 1 Corinthians. The notion that congregation couldn't recite the scriptures, couldn't sing, means that there cannot be public worship. Uh, so effectively, uh, what the uh, governor has done is lock down churches, lock down public worship. Um, I think it's important here, Ryan, to make a point that you're aware of, and, and many of your listeners also would be, to uh, refute an argument one heard almost from the very beginning, I mean, back in March and April, well, actually... These lockdown orders suppressing, essentially suppressing public church meetings are good for the church because then the church can be the church for too long. The church has been safely ensconced in its Sunday worship, you know, and the church needs to be out evangelizing. Yeah. And therefore, this is really good. Uh, this is one of those examples of, of, of a pious argument that actually is not biblically justified. It sounds good on the surface. Right. Of course, the church... The people of God should be out evangelizing and living out the faith. No one, least of all those of us at EICC and elsewhere, would be denying that. But that's not the essential feature of the church. In our English Bibles, uh, church is the translation of ecclesia. Uh, And in fact, uh, it's not at all clear that the English word church, which really means the Lord's house, Mm -hmm. uh, is the best translation of ecclesia. Tyndale, first uh, translator, English translator of the New Testament, translated it, I think, assembly or uh, or congregation. That's what the church is. So the church, what we call the church today, the ecclesia is no more the church than when it actually assembles right. on the Lord's Day on Sunday. That's what's unique about it. 
Christians going everywhere, living faithful Christian lives, declaring the gospel, that, of course, should be a given in the Christian faith. But that's not unique to the church. That's unique to the Christian being a Christian. What's unique to the church is, of course, it's called out. It's a ecclesia means the called out assembly who are meeting in the ancient world, in the ancient Greco-Roman world. It was a group of citizens who would who were called out to meet to make important decisions uh, for the city, uh, for the municipality, and that's the word that the Holy Spirit used. The, the Christian idea of church is this called out assembly when it meets uh, meets on the Lord's day. So essentially, I said all of that, Ryan, to say that essentially Newsom's prohibition are really a prohibition of being a church. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's what's fundamental to understand. Now, so moving on, I believe, and we can tease these things out with any questions later, but so uh, a second point, uh, the second point you mentioned was, okay, so um, talked about John MacArthur. Mm-hmm. and how churches have responded. So let's take those. First, all along, there have been a minority of churches, um, and by the way, all of these would have been Bible-believing churches. Let me make that very emphatic, though briefly. There have, to my knowledge, been no liberal, quote, liberal, or mediating denominational churches, for example, that have been willing to resist these executive orders. I think that's very important to understand. The people that have resisted these executive orders essentially prohibiting church have been people who stand squarely on the authority of the Word of God. Liberals don't do that, and therefore liberals tend to be statists because they don't really have any foundation for their actions anyway. But having said that, a number of smaller churches have been meeting all along. Obviously, they haven't advertised it. You've probably heard of examples in California and elsewhere about uh, some sheriff's departments that have actually been actively seeking out churches to uh, forbid them to open. Uh, There's a church in Arizona that was essentially padlocked. Uh, A number of churches, though, and this is a credit to a number of sheriff's departments. For those in Canada that don't know, we have a a county system uh, different from the provinces in Canada, but a sort of a smaller jurisdiction, and uh, the, the law enforcement in a county which is uh, much smaller than a state, larger than a city, but smaller than a state. Right. Law enforcement is essentially a sheriff's department, and a lot of those sheriff's departments are vested with the authority of enforcing orders like this. Well, to their credit, many sheriff's departments and many sheriffs, even many non-Christians, have refused to enforce this order. So that is, a, thank God, a mitigating circumstance. The attitude of many of them is, look, we're out looking for criminals. We're not going to cite people for, for not wearing masks or for holding a church service. That's a good thing. Nonetheless, it has had a remarkably chilling effect. I guess perhaps in all of this, Ryan, the most disappointing thing is not that some churches decided for health reasons not to hold services. That can be wholly legitimate. For Mm -hmm. elders or church Mm -hmm. leaders to get on their face before God and say, you know what, we have a number of elderly people in our congregation, our middle-aged people, and we live in a high-density area, let's say Toronto or whatever, and this could be a threat. We think it's best temporarily because of this unusual situation to stay close to our members but not meet. That uh, could be a legitimate decision. Uh, Sadly, that wasn't the calculation of many churches. It was simply on this basis, Ryan. Well, 
the government said this, and therefore, obviously, we must obey the government because of Romans 13. So with no further ado, we're going to cancel all church until the government says we can meet again. Uh, I just described the attitude of many, many thousands of churches in California and, um, and other similar states. I'll get to the theological error uh, in a minute. But uh, now having said that, a lot of smaller churches under the radar, as I said, resisted this order and still met, uh, still were uh, stressed sound biblical hygiene, washing of hands, being very careful about personal contact. All of that's legitimate. Uh, the Bible, biblical law, uh, forbids presumption. So we can't just assume, well, there's an illness around and God will always protect me, irrespective of my behavior. The Bible certainly does not teach that. Sure. Uh, any more than it teaches that uh, the church or Christians must obey civil government under every condition. Both of those are true. Now, you mentioned what happened, oh, about a week, week and a half ago. Uh, John MacArthur, uh, pastor of an independent uh, uh, strongly Baptist, Calvinist uh, congregation, one of the largest churches in California, down in uh, the Simi Valley area near, near Los Angeles, uh, decided that uh, he was no longer going to obey this order. His uh, church's attitude at, at the beginning was, yes, the, the state does have jurisdiction, not over the church per se, but over individuals, mm-hmm. and that is legitimate. They have a limited jurisdiction over individuals, and therefore... They took the made the decision not to meet, uh, seeing what uh, how the virus would act. But as weeks went on, and this became an ongoing, what was considered to be a short term, a highly temporary executive order, turned into something uh, tragically much more permanent. Months and months later, MacArthur decided, and he would, by the way, he would go in and preach every Sunday to first an empty congregation, and then he said, fifty people showed up. He pastors a congregation, I think, about three or 4,000. Right. And then the next week, a few hundreds would show up. And finally, he said, you know, we're not going as elders any longer to obey this order. And he made a very public stand about it. Last Sunday, some of you have heard, uh, would have heard or read about uh, the sermon he preached. The congregation was packed. Almost no one was wearing masks. And to my knowledge, uh, there's been no increased incidence of, of COVID. Most importantly, though, was the man of that stature uh, who committed to the Word of God who was to take a public stand. Now, Ryan, that gets, if you don't mind my going on a little bit, that gets really to the theology behind a resistance to these executive orders. And it's what those of us at, uh, at the Runner Academy, at the EICC, at CCL, have talked about for many years, and that is fear sovereignty. That's right. Uh, essentially established by Abraham Kuyper, before him, Reuben Prinster, which um, I could spend a long time on but won't. Essentially, it's the idea that God has established in the earth several different institutions as independent spheres of authority. The three main ones are the family and the church and the state. What's imperative to understand is, is each of them has its own unique calling and its unique jurisdiction that the others can't trample on. Uh, For instance, the family cannot uh, enforce civil law or capital punishment. Uh, The state can't dictate beliefs or Christian orthodoxy to the church. Uh, The church can't take um, law enforcement into its own hands. And Mm -hmm. we could go on and on. Each of them has its own unique place. Now, of course, 
in a biblically ordered world, all of these would work together under God's authority and work with one another. But nonetheless, they're not subject to the jurisdiction. As I said earlier, individuals in the church as individuals are subject to civil government. Uh, but the Church of Jesus Christ, in its own unique calling, is not subject to civil government. Again, in its unique calling, it's right. not. Um, and the same thing with respect to the to the family and uh, the family and the state. So, having said that, and this I think is a, a fundamental point that so many churches, I would say the vast majority even of conservative churches in Canada and the U.S. and elsewhere would fail to understand, is this. When the COVID uh, situation arose, the responsibility of the church should have been, what is our unique role in this situation? What should we be preaching? What policy should we be establishing? What has God called us to do in this situation? Because it's not only the responsibility of politicians or health officials to determine how the church should act. It's fundamentally the responsibility of the church to determine how the church should act. Yes, the church should listen to the state in a limited sense on, on some health issues, but it's the responsibility of the church to stand up and to be the church. Now, at that time, I wrote, and uh, I believe the Dr. Boot wrote and some others, the church should have said this. We are willing temporarily, if it's best for our congregation, not to meet for a very short time to protect, let's say, older members uh, or those in high urban areas. That would be perfectly permissible. Mm -hmm. But those in areas where there was virtually no COVID, where there was virtually no um, uh, threat of any COVID problem, should have said, we're not going to obey this order, certainly not merely because the state said so. We're called to meet Every Lord's Day, the book of Hebrews makes clear, we cannot abandon the assembling of ourselves together. Certainly not for light and transient reasons. Um, but many churches simply did not do that, and therefore they essentially abandoned their calling because they don't understand sphere sovereignty. They tend to interpret Romans 13 to mean we should obey the state under all conditions, and obviously whatever the civil government says, essentially, we have to obey as long as they don't say specifically, don't preach the gospel, for example. On everything else, we must obey. And that's something the Bible does not teach, of course. And sadly, because of that, there was a failure of the church. Now, because of that, and this is, and I'll, in a minute, come to the end, Ryan, and you can pepper any questions you'd like. Because of that, uh, the church has developed, uh, tragically now, a created a habit and created, if I might say so, an, an environment in which church, little by little, actually erodes. And it goes like this. A number of churches say, well, this has worked out pretty well. We have Zoom meetings, mm -hmm. and that is our church. Some churches, Ryan, tragically, have gone so far as to say, well, we'll have sort of virtual communion, and you take your elements there at home, and we here will... Um, you know, the elders in church are wherever they are, standing somewhere alone, beamed by the uh, Wi-Fi, mm -hmm. you know, partake of your elements and we'll preach. And some of them have said, you know, this is working out so well that, uh, you know, maybe we don't need to meet very much anymore. Even when, yes, we'll meet again starting in January if we can, maybe not then, if the state, but this has worked out so well. And uh, therefore, maybe we'll only meet intermittently. Um, so what has happened, having said that, the reason that is so ominous is because 
it is of the essence of the church to assemble, and it doesn't mean virtually assemble, it means actually, corporeally, physically assemble, uh, so that you can actually touch somebody's hand, you can touch his or her shoulder. It's real, it's tactile. Because of that, because that is going away, eventually then uh, the church itself can go away. I don't mean all churches, of course. Mm-hmm. But many churches will become simply Zoom meetings. Incidentally, nothing wrong with Zoom meetings. Um, I just um, have done a number, did one last night, and we'll do one next week. But Zoom meetings are not church services. Sure, They're just not. Yeah. Let's just say what they are. Yes, we're having a Christian Zoom meeting. Great. Nothing wrong with it. Maybe might need more of them during this time. But mm-hmm. that's not church. We need to make that distinction. So on the last 10 or 15 minutes, I know I've said a lot, Ryan, but uh, I hope that I've at least gotten to answer a number of those questions. But we can um, we can delve into more now if you'd like. No, I really appreciated uh, that. And I've got uh, you raised a couple of points that I'd love, love to uh, push on a little further. Um, the first, uh, you, you, you used the word ominous a couple of times there, and one, one of the other debates or arguments, uh, depending on who's involved uh, in amongst Christians, is uh, this talk and this attitude of the Christian and the church towards persecution. And there, there are those who say that, uh, that this is persecution and that we need to stand against it and that the Christian response to persecution looks like X. There are others who are saying, you know, this isn't real persecution. Nobody's getting thrown to the lions. Stop being an alarmist. But, uh, you know, persecution doesn't start with throwing people to the lions. Um, So I just, uh, I'd appreciate your take on what do you, what do you see here in terms of the, uh, this this talk about persecution? Yes, that's a great question, Ryan. So uh, you're absolutely correct in what you said. This is, uh, we, if we may label it, soft core persecution. Uh, the prohibition of church never begins, or almost never begins in a society, with the state saying, do not name the name of Jesus Christ. Of course, that happened uh, in the uh, early New Covenant church in the book of Acts with the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders. Uh, but generally, that's not the way that persecution in modern Western societies start. They at least, most of them had a foundation in Christianity, and therefore, uh, they're not going to begin persecution by saying, you can't preach the gospel, period. They're going to establish zoning regulations, or in this case, uh, um, epidemiological uh, regulations mm-hmm. that the church from being the church, and thus, and I think this is the fundamental point, thus create a plausibility structure that is an entire way of thinking that would justify doing away with the church in the end. So uh, in this case, let's go back to Governor Newsom. Uh, He doesn't have to say, don't preach the gospel, if he can say it's forbidden for church members to sing or to recite the scripture, uh, it's forbidden for church members to have any sort of physical contact when the New Testament clearly indicates that that is one aspect of worship. When it says greet one another with a holy kiss, that is a specific, though that is culturally conditioned. The principle of the sort of physical 
uh, contact and physical affection appropriately. Appropriate, of course, not sexual, but appropriate. That is part of what it means to be the church. Uh, so these kinds of prohibitions effectively create a, a, a way of thinking, a plausibility structure that down the road will uh, easily be used to say, well, obviously, it, this ch- church idea is not working, so it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. And uh, the name of Christ is becoming increasingly divisive anyway. We already have a foundation. Think of this, Ryan. We already have a plausibility structure for the church not really meeting on certain conditions. So it's not that much farther to say that because this is harmful, because people are using this language of Jesus Christ in the Bible, which is really hate speech, it's better, it's just easy to forbid it uh, altogether. Now, to say that can't happen in Canada or the U.S. is the height of folly. Uh, it has happened historically elsewhere. It, it, it happened over, virtually over two-thirds of the globe for much of the 20th century in Marxist states and also in a separate way, though, in Islamic, strict Islamic states. Mm-hmm. So it certainly can happen. What we really say is, well, that could never happen in the West. And that, of course, uh, is, a, uh, is, is a fanciful fallacy, as though somehow this kind of persecution could never affect us. Uh, That, of course, is false. It is a form of persecution. Um, Now, another thing I'll point, you didn't quite touch on this, Ryan, but since you probably know I wrote about this uh, today as we're recording, a number of Christians, uh, though they would acknowledge this as persecution, would invite this. Mm -hmm. Actually, this is really good for us because... Uh, you perhaps have heard this logic. Um, the persecuted church is the purest church, and therefore we should invite persecution. And it's really yeah. a great thing, and we shouldn't oppose it in any way, and uh, therefore this is really good. And if uh, if Christians get thrown in jail, great, because that really means that the true Christians will show themselves, and of course the, the inauthentic the false Christians will be shown. Uh, the problem with that logic is that it's counter-biblical. Uh, the New Testament says, pray with respect to the king or the civil magistrate that you live a quiet and peaceful life. Not that you're persecuted, but the magistrate leaves you alone to do your task of rearing your family, of, of preaching the gospel, of, of attending your church, of influencing the world for the kingdom of God. That's what we're to pray for. And it's those who are committed to the cultural mandate that is this in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, this mandate given to uh, humanity, mankind. Uh, and also after the fall to Noah in the first few verses of uh, Genesis chapter 9, mm-hmm. to uh, to cultivate the earth for God's glory. Well, you can't do that if you're sitting in jail or locked up in your house. So this, uh, if I may use this language, Ryan, this lust for persecution many Christians have, is another of those examples of uh, what Rishtuni used to call pious gush, Sort of pious language that impresses people, but is not really biblical. And uh, for that reason, we need to recognize: yes, this is the beginning of persecution, soft core persecution. And no, it's not something we should we should refuse to oppose. As I wrote today, we should punch back in a legitimate way, in a Christian way, in a responsible way. You're going to have to be content with uh, blowing your own trumpet on that, because I, I wanted to mention that article, and we will get to that on uh, Christian counterpunching. Uh, but I appreciate that you did bring it up here. Uh, before we get to that, one of the other things that uh, that you mentioned is that the uh, the 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 line between 
churches that have opened and churches that have elected to stay shut broadly falls between liberal and uh, biblical uh, churches. And that's uh, that's been largely the case uh, here in uh, in our own area as well. Um, and I'm just uh, I'd be curious what you see in that about uh, so the implications for so the future of the church and uh, the church as institution uh, in the West. Do like do we think that these churches that refuse to meet? Because I, I kind of look six months into the future and people realizing that uh, people who have been attending these churches realizing that oh we haven't uh, we haven't been meeting for 10 months and we're not really any worse off for that why are we we're not going to we're not going to tune in on sunday mornings to the zoom sermon either anymore and i just wonder like what do you think that uh, or what, what do you think is going to become of these churches that persist in not meeting and not being the church Yes, that's a very perceptive question. Um, uh, I think the underlying that question, your logic is entirely correct, and you're right. There are many, many thousands of Christians, and not only undevout ones, also devout ones, mm-hmm. whose churches uh, have not been meeting and uh, have been saying, "I, I don't. Our family doesn't feel any the worse as a result." I think what's going to happen. None of us, of course, can see the future, but God, who knows it exhaustively, but I think what's going to happen is that out of this will come those churches that have been faithful will become stronger. They will understand that to be the church is to meet on the Lord's Day, and they have been doing that all along, uh, or if they have, have only temporarily shut down, have seen that that's not something that we can do permanently. Uh, the faithful in their congregation have seen the uh, value of that, and if anything, value their churches more than they ever did because of that. I think the uh, Christians whose churches have been closed for 10 months have been watching Zoom meetings from time to time, and perhaps less so as time goes on, will say, well, we're not sure that we need the church. But I think that the churches, Ryan, that have essentially capitulated and have refused to meet they will always find a way to continue, and that is they will continue as the virtual church. And many of them, because their income has been reduced drastically because of this, and understandably, I might add, mm-hmm. will simply just have Zoom ministries and Zoom churches. Uh, now, by the way, that is a contradiction of terms, as I said before. There's right. no such thing as a Zoom church, but that won't keep them from doing it. Yeah. I yeah. think, I, you mentioned my use of the term ominous, what is ominous? is that increasingly that, too, will become a plausibility structure, that one doesn't need this corporeal Lord's Day meeting, the tactile meeting, the assembly, in order to have church. And what will happen, and it's already happening, I should say, is a number of Christians who will, perhaps three or four of them, five, a couple families get together on a Thursday night and say, oh, we had church, we watched a... We watched a Zoom sermon, and that was our church. Yeah. Uh, then the church, the term church becomes so elastic uh, as to mean anything. Uh, years ago, perhaps, Ryan, you've heard ministers joke about those Christians who on Sunday uh, will go out uh, for weeks on end every weekend fishing or 
hunting, saying, well, I'm worshiping God in nature, and the pastor rightly says you can't worship God only in nature. You have to worship among the people of God on the Lord's day. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, that very principle, the idea of just sort of worshiping God out, not in nature, but in this case with technology, apart from this meeting of the people of God, will become a norm. That will become normative for many people. And I think I said on a, a meeting uh, this, I think what will happen, Ryan, think about this. The notion of a tactile meeting will be considered something unusual or special. Yes, our church will do Zoom church every Sunday, but once a quarter, we're all going to come together, perhaps socially distanced, and it'll feel really good. We're going to have a meal and talk to one another, what's been going on in one another's lives, and then we won't, that'll be in March, and then we'll perhaps meet again in July and meet outside, and eventually then what the ecclesia is no more. You might have Christians, but you don't have church. You don't have an ecclesia. And then when that happens, we have radically distorted what Christianity really is. Because in the Bible, you can't have Christianity without the ecclesia. Now, Christianity is bigger than the ecclesia. The kingdom is much bigger than the ecclesia. That's an important point. The ecclesia is necessary. It's absolutely necessary. So let's uh, let's get to uh, this article that uh, that you just published this morning, Christian counterpunching. You wrote that uh, the uh, the Christian approach to wickedness, both personal and cultural, is a hearty resistance to opposition. And you're uh, you mention in uh, the Proto Evangelium in uh, Genesis three, when God God declares curses on the man, the woman, and the serpent, and significantly their offspring as well. So Christian, Christian counterpunching, uh, the, to use your term there, includes not only you know, the so-called spiritual activities like prayer, but the, a real-world confrontation Confront, like, that actually puts some, some skin in the game here. Can you, you just say a little bit about, uh, about your article and what... Uh, what Christian counterpunching looks like? Yes, uh, I, I think it's imperative. The, the place to start in answering that question uh, is understanding uh, what sin is, what the curse is, mm-hmm. and what salvation, uh, the gospel, the evangel is designed to do. And the reason I mentioned Genesis 3.15 is because that really is the first gospel message in the Bible. And I think it's a lovely and tender fact that the first gospel preacher in the Bible was not John the Baptist or Jesus, but God the Father. He's the one that made this gospel promise to our first parents, Adam and Eve, that led the world into sin. But despite their sin and despite the consequences, there is this great gospel promise. The seed of the woman is to crush. Uh, That's really the language there. Uh, Some of the older translations have bruised, but it's actually quite stronger than that in the Hebrew. Hmm. Uh, It's really to crush uh, the head of the seed of the serpent, and of course the serpent and his offspring would crush the heel of this one to come. We know from the New Testament this is Christ. Obviously he had this temporary heel wound of death, though he was raised, but nonetheless Satan was definitively crushed on the cross and the resurrection. Well, now if you think about it, what's been crushed is sin. Now, uh, in, in our modern culture, particularly in the last 150 years, sin has been defined as largely internal, you know, the sin in my heart, my covetousness, my lust, my bad thoughts, and that is, those are, of course, sinful. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but the notion that there are very external tactile sins, um, socialism, the taking of property, uh, obviously abortion, specific external sexual sins, not just practiced in the bedroom, homosexuality, adultery, but also approved in law in very specific uh, cultural ways. Uh, there are Christians who recognize that, but who say, well, I must fight sin in my own life. And of course, according to Romans 6, that's true. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's not really my responsibility to punch against this sin as it's manifested in culture. But that really is to deny the truth of Genesis 3.15. Now think about it. The promise, as you said, and this is fundamental, is to the offspring, not just to Christ, who is the main offspring, and not mm-hmm. just, of course, the curse on the offspring of the woman, uh, not just the woman, but the offspring of the woman. And therefore, we as the offspring of uh, Jesus Christ, those united to him by faith, are involved in this battle under his authority. Uh, therefore, and this is fundamental, when we when we see evil in a culture and not just in our own lives, it's our responsibility to push back. Not everybody pushes back in the same way everywhere because God gives us specific gifts, but each of us has a specific cultural calling. So the attitude that, well, uh, the culture is getting really bad. Now, of course, there's the legalization of same-sex marriage, the legalization of abortion. Uh, in what we're talking about in this podcast, the draconian uh, lockdown measures, and particularly with respect to the church, uh, in effect closing the church doors, uh, that is a form of persecution. Let's just back off, continually back off, and the Lord will deliver us. Uh, yes, the Lord will deliver his people that are faithful to him, but we're not faithful to him if we don't use every legitimate ne- means necessary to oppose this. Now, in in like Paul himself, when he was before political rulers, used his Roman citizenship, using the means at our disposal, social means, political means, to punch back against this evil, uh, speaking against it, voting against it, mm-hmm. uh, resisting it with our mouth and with our life is our calling, because wherever sin is, wherever sin is, it is a threat to the kingdom of God. Uh, many Christians don't really understand that point, they do understand sin of their own hearts as being a threat to the faith, and they're correct. That's where sin begins. But sin does have very specific cultural manifestations, and our responsibility of believers is to oppose it and to, and to punch back against it. Um, if if we don't, and there is, I believe in that article, and I would encourage your uh, readers, if they can, just look it up. It's called Christian Counterpunching. Toward the end there. Uh, there is a very uh, sobering, heart-rending quote from the uh, Russian uh, Christian, the late Alexander Solzhenitsyn, probably the most prominent Christian, I'm sorry, a, a Russian novelist mm-hmm. and writer in the 20th century. And um, his uh, book, actually a three-volume book, The Gulag um, Archipelago, he says something very powerful. He says, uh, why is it? that in those early years when the Soviet secret police came to our houses to drag people away to be tortured and murdered, there were enough of us, there were plenty of us, able to get uh, axes or weapons of some kind to, to scare these people off, and we could have saved millions and millions and millions of lives mm-hmm. had we done so. But he says, we did not love freedom enough. Um, the responsibility of Christians, of course, to cultural evil 
is almost never, of course, to pick up physical weapons and axes. Uh, although if someone's breaking into your house and physically assaulting, that's appropriate according to the Bible. But our job is not armed resistance. Our job is to resist the devil and Satan and uh, his minions wherever they are and whatever they're doing yeah. by our voice and by our lives. So acquiescence to evil, Ryan, is a form of evil. And it's not somehow pious if we refuse to punch back and punch back hard against cultural evil wherever we see it. Yeah, that's uh, that's another really valuable point. Uh, I th I think it's a it's a point that often goes unacknowledged in uh, in the twenty first century at least the reality of of demons in the world. P Peter Jones, who you know well, he's done some great work drawing attention to the resurgence of paganism in the West. But uh, what what can we say from Scripture about the activity of satanic principalities and powers? Yes, that's another great question, Ryan. Um, yeah, I think that um, a couple of factors have conspired to blind Christians' eyes, or at least shield them from this biblical truth. One of them is the European Enlightenment that looked upon any of this supernatural activity mm -hmm. uh, as somehow um, just uh, silly and superstitious. And of course, if there is a God, he's sort of the... the God of deism, which is the God way out there somewhere who doesn't really interfere, you know, or perform miracles. Uh, and of course, this was equally true not only of holy spirits, the perfect spirit God, and also angels, but also true of demonic spirits. Uh, but the second factor among Christians, certainly among many sincere Christians, is seeing some of the silliness among our Pentecostal and, and charismatic brothers who are constantly blaming demons for their own sins when they are personally responsible. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is true. That's a valid criticism of some Pentecostals and Charismatics. But let's set those aside and let's just go back to the Word of God. The Bible is very clear what it calls principalities and powers stand behind the great evil of the world. The, the picture the Bible presents of the world, and this is in Ephesians 6 and elsewhere, is that we ourselves are, are participants in a great cosmic conflict whose underlying source is behind the scenes. scenes. The triune God and all of those uh, angels and heavenly beings aligned with him on one side, and Lucifer and all of those unholy beings that he drew along with him in the satanic fall, are, 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 together, are involved in a great battle. Christians, of course, and the triumph God will win, of course, but nonetheless, there's a great battle going on. Each of these is enlisting humans, man created in the image of God, to align for his purposes. So Satan, we talk about conversions to the Lord's side. That's true. Well, Satan has an advantage. He already has people born into sin, and mm -hmm. of course, his goal is to keep them aligned with his side. So uh, this act, this demonic activity in the world is something everybody in the Bible would assume. Now, if you some of your listeners have read the book of Daniel, and Daniel and, and elsewhere, by the way, but particularly there's language that's used translated there, the watchers and others. And there's the picture of Daniel praying and an angel coming to answer his prayer from his standpoint pretty late, about three weeks late. And he said, I would have been here early, earlier, where not the prince of Persia would have withstood me. Well, Hebrew scholars are, are quite convinced, and I am too, this is referring to an angel that has jurisdiction. So mm. essentially the picture here 
is that at creation, God gave a number of higher angels sort of jurisdiction and authority over areas of the earth. Now, if that sounds weird and creepy, well, that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible's weird and creepy. That's true. God is a God who delegates authority. I mean, think about it. He delegated authority to man in the Dominion Commission, mm-hmm. the cultural mandate. He also delegates authority to other beings, those not created in his image, but nonetheless angels and others. Well, what's called principalities and powers, the reason they're called powers and authorities is because a group of these angels that had this jurisdiction fell with Satan. Now, God, of course, could immediately have thrown them out and destroyed everything, but he chose not to do that. He chose to get his victory through man's faithfulness and not simply destroy the world and start over again. And we can thank God for that. He didn't scrap everything. So because of that, there is, because of that, there's this ongoing battle. Now, let me make one more point. When we see these lockdown orders and other political suppression, behind it almost always we see Satan. Now, now think about it. How did Satan, known, known as Lucifer, of course, at the time, how did he fall? Well, he wanted the throne. He wanted to ascend, Ezekiel and Isaiah indicate, he wanted to ascend to the heavenly throne. He wanted to pull God down from his throne. So Satan is constantly lusting for authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did he tempt Jesus? Please, he says, uh, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world for their mind. He wants authority. Therefore, Satan is constantly drawn to power. Satan, and, and he's constantly tempted by the lust for greater power. Well, in society, in the human realm, what is a, a prominent, probably the most prominent exercise of power? Well, it's in the state and in politics, and legitimately in Romans 13. Right. So Satan's, Satan is constantly drawn to tempt and to influence politicians and state power so he can gain power by influencing them. So in this current situation, what we see is the work of principalities and powers behind politicians to destroy the cause of Christ and to crush it. And that's happened largely, of course, in the old Soviet Union today, in North Korea, in Islamic states, and elsewhere. And it's also behind the draconian measures uh, more recently in Western culture. You know, I would think that you know, that's, uh, that's plenty of good reason for Christians to be up and active and uh, trusting in the power of God, obeying in the power of God to, uh, to get back together to, uh, to encourage one another as the assembled people of God. Yes, you've, uh, and you've really touched on something I didn't mention there. And thank you, Ryan, for pointing that out. Um, but one reason the church, the ecclesia, is essential is because there is greater strength uh, in the unity of the people of God. It's true that we as individual Christians have our responsibilities, but uh, when we're united uh, and in the Bible, that union among the people of God, the principal union is always in the ecclesia, in the church. Therefore, the church does battle. And that's why, of course, in Matthew, um, Jesus' great promise in Matthew 16, 18, when the gates of Hades will not prevail, he doesn't say won't prevail against individual Christians. He says won't prevail against the ecclesia. So this promise of victory uh, over, uh, when he uses the, the gates of sometimes hell, it uh, means Hades, it means the place of the dead, the place of destruction, the place of, of uh, satanic control and death and so on. Uh, what he's really saying there is the church will trample down Satan and his work, uh, which, is, frankly, is very much what was promised in Genesis 3.15. But the mm-hmm. point I'm making here is this is a promise given to the church, the ecclesia, and not individuals as such. 
So therefore, if you think about it, going back to what we said, the 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 attempt to abolish this church, this meeting, this corporate worship, is really a satanic attempt to attack his enemy, who is the church, so the church will be futile and weak and emasculated and can't fight him. So Satan certainly has a vested interest in the church not meeting because he knows of these promises. Andrew, that's, uh, that's an insightful and an encouraging thought. I really appreciate your time here. It's been great to... Uh, Great to have you with us, and we look forward to uh, to seeing you again soon in person. You bet. Can't wait to see you, my friend. Appreciate all you guys are doing. God bless you, Ryan. And you, brother. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. If you did, it would mean a lot to us if you took a moment to subscribe, like, and share the podcast on social media and on your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.